Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to Netflix Coffee and Questioning Humanity. Today, we are diving into something different and honestly, something I have been working on for months. M-O-N-T-H-S. Long time. Today, we are going to discuss the evolution of America's next top model. It's a more niche topic. I know, I know. It may not be up your alley and that's totally okay. But this called to me. I was heavily inspired by one of my favorite YouTubers, Smokey Glow. She has an evolution of series based around YouTubers and things revolving around the beauty community. And she does such a fantastic job. I can only dream to be as articulate as Hannah. I knew for a while that I wanted to dissect this show between watching Hannah's series and all of the rehashed horrendous things that came back up to light during quarantine. It really got me thinking, how did America's Next Top Model have such an epic rise and an even more epic fall? What went wrong? What went right? I'm going to break it down into eras that I have personally dubbed myself and we will split this conversation up into a few episodes because it's a lot. I'm also going to be spilling some tea that you may or may not be privy to. And let me tell you, if you don't know or you just plain forgot, it is juicy. So grab your snacks, get your coffee and strap in for part one of the evolution of America's Next Top Model. Friendly reminder that this is an explicit podcast, which means I may discuss explicit content while most certainly using explicit language. So little ears, my mom and dad, and anyone easily offended may want to bow out. We're going to go over some pretty intense topics today. Now, on with the show. It is officially holiday season and Stabby's has their new red cups and their new holiday drinks. They have the peppermint mocha, the caramel brulee latte, the toasted white chocolate mocha. And that's exactly what I'm drinking. And I am so revved up, so ready to go. Also, I'm so sorry if you hear any jangling in the background. A new kitten joined the family named Unger Boda. I call her Ungi. And she's a mad woman. She's fucking crazy. So she's just running around with her brother, Painting the town red, no big deal. They're just super loud, so I apologize in advance. But yeah, I'm just sipping on my holiday goodness, delicious. I'm feeling festive. I'm feeling caffeinated. I'm feeling ready to go. This episode is a beast, so I'm going to need it. I hope you have your coffee ready too, okay? Are we ready? Without further ado, let's get into part one of the evolution of America's Next Top Model. America's Next Top Model is an American reality television series, an interactive competition in which a number of aspiring models compete for the title of, you guessed it, America's Next Top Model, and a chance to begin their career in the modeling industry. Created by Tyra Banks, who also serves as an executive producer, and developed by Ken Mock and Kenya Barris. The competition consists of 9 to 16 episodes and starts with 10 to 16 contestants, depending on the season or as they are referred to in America's Next Top 
Top Model cycles. Contestants are judged weekly on their overall appearance, participation in challenges, and best shot from that week's photo shoot. In each episode after the casting episode, one contestant is eliminated. Though in rare cases, a double elimination or no elimination was given by consensus of the judging panel. Makeovers are also conducted early in the cycle, usually the first or second episode after casting. And a trip to an international destination is scheduled about two-thirds of the way through each cycle. Sounds pretty incredible, right? I mean, if you've seen it, you know. Tyra Banks was a supermodel and is, to this day, a household name. In the late 90s, Tyra was on top of the world. She was everywhere. She appeared in music videos from Michael Jackson, Lionel Richie, and Tina Turner. She guest starred on popular TV shows like Fresh Prince and all that. And that wasn't even her primary focus. She has graced, no, 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 graced isn't the word, kilt the runways for some of the most elite brands in the world like Paco Rabanne, Yves Saint Laurent, Mugler, Chanel, Dior, Lagerfeld, and of course, most iconically, Victoria's Secret. In 1996, Tyra became the first black woman to appear on the covers of both GQ and Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. In 1997, she also became the first black woman to appear on a Victoria's Secret catalog. And that same year, won Model of the Year at the VH1 Awards. Way back in the day when we were convinced that award shows actually mattered. By the time America's Next Top Model hit airwaves, Tyra was a bona fide star. The idea of a supermodel wanting to create a, quote, dramality competition, which is drama and reality all in one, in 2003, which was a year after American Idol premiered and in the midst of Survivor Mania, was opportune to say the least because people were living for reality competitions at this time. And Tyra explained that the idea came to her organically, in her underwear, at the perfect time. Where did you get the idea for that show? That is such a good idea. It's a weird pool. Okay. I was in my um, kitchen fixing some breakfast that I had on my underwear. And um, I walked from the kitchen to the dining room. Oprah, I looked out the window. It had this beautiful view and it came to me. I was like, I want to do like an American Idol, but for models, but they live together like the real world. And then I modeled it after my own experience. I lived in a model's apartment with eight girls. All that reality of models living together and every single thing the girls have done, I've done. All those weird photo shoots, whether they're hanging from wires or underwater, I've done all of it. And so the perfect storm took off and as Tyra said, put the television network UPN on the map. And here is where the butterfly leaves the cocoon. The beginning, the UPN era, cycles one through six. I was rooting for you. We were all rooting for you. How dare you? Acting, acting, acting. That was fake. These girls, self-included, have been like monkeys in a cage and you drop big bananas inside. Of course, they're going to tear the peels off. I think of the worst puzzle thing I can do. What? Hello, hi. Think you should mind your business. Cassandra, why are you crying? I love my hair. <laughs> Who writes in someone's food? My name is Jade, the ace of spades. Aranda, my dear, I know your skin is bumpy, but my skin is flawless and you look really lumpy. Oh. Nobody else took it there. Like, nobody was like, yo, Jade, you look like an 85-year-old woman. There are the most vapid conversations you've ever experienced going on all around me all the time. If I have to hear one more word about that Red Bull, she'll be wearing it tonight. This is my signature walk and this is what's going to make me famous. And I want my muse to live inside my house with me. I would be honored to live with you, of course. Stop crying. 
quoting Jay and Silent Bob right next to my ear. We all agree that Lisa is crazy and has lost her damn mind. And what are you doing, alcoholic bitch? A gas mask meets the runway, and I, I love it. This is a competition. This is not America's Next Top Best Friend. Cycle one of America's Next Top Model premiered on UPN on a Tuesday evening, May 20th, 2003, and ran until July of the same year. The producers and Tyra only decided on eight instead of 10 girls initially. Then after the eight were settled into their hotel, they brought in two other girls, but this was still the smallest cast to date. Even the first and the smallest group was made up of aspiring models from all walks of life. There were devout Christians, militant atheists, and contestants who fell somewhere in the middle. Tyra made it very clear she wanted women of different ethnicities, and that was very apparent in casting the finalists. A monumental moment in reality TV was the casting of Ebony, a lesbian woman of color. This was a huge deal in 2003. Until 1962, all 50 states criminalized same-sex sexual activity, and it wasn't until the same year that Top Model premiered that all remaining laws against same-sex sexual activities had been invalidated. She was nowhere near the first openly gay person to appear on reality TV. We saw the real world and the challenge on MTV cast many in the LGBTQ community for years. But this was on a massive family TV network. This was a very big deal. Some contestants were city girls from places like Chicago and Memphis, then others from smaller communities like Rancho Marietta, California, and Franklin, Ohio. The latter had a population of a little over 11,000. So this was a massive culture shock for some. And uncharted waters for all on their mission to win the insane prizes being offered. A modeling contract with Wilhelmina Models, one of the world's top modeling agencies, a spread in Marie Claire magazine, and a contract with Revlon Cosmetics. Another major part of America's Next Top Model was the judging panel. The first cycle featured Beau Quillian, who was a fashion editor for Marie Claire and was soft-spoken, sort of the history teacher of the judges, if you will. He wasn't exactly memorable. Camorally Simmons, who essentially was Karl Lagerfeld's muse for Chanel, as he deemed her the face of the 21st century, and at the time of the show's airing was president and creative director for Baby Fat, a massively successful clothing line that's revenue was well over 200 million in 2002. Kimura was obviously extremely successful, but she wasn't a judge who gave too much input. But when she did, her critiques were analytical and honest. I liked her as a judge, even though she isn't exactly a fan favorite. Janice Dickinson, known on the show for her biting, brutal honesty that oftentimes crossed the line of cruelty. But to many, including myself, there was something fresh about her. You hate that you love her because she would say some of the most vile things. But I can't explain it. There was something that made her seem genuine. Like she was going to say all the things the meanies in the modeling world would say first and should say it to your face out of love. I know that sounds crazy, but I do feel like it was from a place of love. Janice is often dubbed the world's first supermodel and no one believes that more than herself. She appeared within and on the covers of magazines including Harper's Bazaar, Cosmopolitan, Vogue, Marie Claire, and Playboy and worked with some of fashion's best known names. Rounding out judging was of course Tyra 
Banks, who also served as executive producer and presenter of the show. The two other consistent faces on the show were the infamous Mr. and Ms. J. Mr. J. Manuel, being the creative director of photo shoots, was beloved by contestants and fans alike for his big brother mentorship and soft words when you need it, but tough love when you need it way of communicating with contestants. J. Manuel has worked as a makeup artist and stylist for Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, Marie Claire, Victoria's Secret. Manuel has also worked with noted fashion photographers such as Herb Ritz, Richard Evadon, Annie Lubavitz, and Francesco Scavullo. He has been a makeup artist and stylist to celebrities such as Tyra Banks, Naomi Campbell, Amon, Alicia Silverstone, Angela Bassett, Jada Pinkett Smith, Maya, Kim Cattrall, Natalie Cole, Tony Braxton, the list goes on. Ms. J, runway coach extraordinaire, was instantly a favorite as well, especially for me. Ms. J Alexander was another incredible addition to a large network that reached millions as a queer icon. Something quickly to clarify is that I have found no definitive preferred pronouns that Ms. J uses. It seems she lives label free. So I will be using both she, her, and he, him pronouns throughout my discussion. This is even more incredible to have someone who is gender non-conforming on television in 2003. It pushed TV viewers further in understanding the complexity of gender in a world which most people can be both or neither, a concept that is still being processed by many even today. At a young age, Jay Alexander met with the president of Elite Model Management, Monique Pillard, and she was so impressed with his look that she signed him to her agency, and he walked for designer Jean-Paul Gaultier in New York City. Alexander's career as a runway coach began accidentally. He would coach models backstage and eventually became recognized for his skills as a coach. He has been coaching and casting since 1991, and he rose to prominence in this field when he coached supermodel Naomi Campbell, the Naomi Campbell, and model Kamora Lee Simmons. For 20 years, he has helped with casting and coaching models for well-known designers such as Valentino, John Galliano, Chanel, and Alexander McQueen. Big names. The photo shoots in the first cycle were a combination of bikinis in the cold, beauty shots being photographed nude, commercial work with well-known brands, and shoots with shock factor. This format would be a pattern throughout the photo shoots in later cycles because it kept viewers entertained while also shedding some light on the weird and sometimes difficult conditions models have to work through. The same pattern was laid for challenges as well that ranged from acting, perfecting their signature walk, walking in fashion shows, participating in television interviews, and the always entertaining go-sees, which is when a model goes and sees a designer to be considered for work. The contestants are usually given a time constraint and have to present their best selves, personality, looks, and talent-wise. From the very beginning, Tyra dubbed the show a dramality, as I mentioned in the intro. Let's talk about this show. This is a this is a reality show that you're doing. Dramality. What what was that? A dramality. My co-executive producer says dramality. Okay, it's drama reality. Yeah, it's yeah, dramality. Drama. Yes. Okay. It's not just you know pretty girls. Okay. You know, prancing around saying I want to be a model. It's their lives you know inside and out. We not only saw the girls as aspiring models, but also watched them Big Brother style in their apartment that they shared without phones, television, and anything else that would give them access to what was happening in the outside world. There was obvious tension in a house full of women who had no way to contact the outside world. And spoiler alert, there is in every cycle. But the root of the tensions this first cycle was based on religious beliefs. One of the controversies in 2003 was a segment of the show where they gave the contestants a bikini wax, which was very uncomfortable for many of the ladies, as you can imagine. 
Also, the weigh-in was side-eyed, even in 2003. Tyra's excuse was that she wanted to make sure the girls weren't too thin, which doesn't really make too much sense. In hindsight, there was a lot of cringe happening, even in the first cycle. Another major controversy revolved around, well, uh, everything Janice has said. This looks like she escaped from a mental institution. This is the worst photograph I've ever seen. You look deranged. Your arms look amputeed. Your legs look amputeed. And it looks like you have a penis. I'm sorry. Let's just call it as it is. Robin, first of all, is too old to be starting a model. She's huge. She's not going to be a top model. She's, she won't. That's she the should reality. work for That's a car toppling company. I think that you guys are yeah. the problem with America. I think you are the problem of why women are leaning right. over the you, toilets you. at this very moment and vomiting after they've eaten or taking laxatives after they've eaten. The full-figured market's changing. 13 years old. 13. Yeah. Really, really young. Like child prostitute. This photograph looks like the batteries died in her vibrator. What are we modeling here? Yeah, it doesn't show anything. There's no bathing suit. I know. The hand coming through your legs looks like something that is on a man. It's like a Hitchcock film. Go back and forth, back and forth really fast to see what I mean. You look like you belong in a cornfield, like scaring crows away. There was also a consistent narrative about how incredibly thin Elise was and how fabulous it was. As far as I know, Elise is naturally thin. And I personally think it's wrong to shame anyone's size. Skinny, fat, I don't care. There is no such thing as normal sized. It's completely subjective. My issue with this narrative is that, uh, let me try to explain it as best I can. In the modeling world, there is a real problem of eating disorders. In order to be that ideal tiny size that designers are looking for, that is the reality. This is well known to people, regular people, some people who don't even have an interest in modeling or have no knowledge. And Specifically, kids know about this, young adults. And in their mind, before they're even watching this show and watching the narrative that they're putting out there, they know that skinny equals model and model equals beautiful. And therefore, skinny equals beautiful. So then when they watch America's Next Top Model and they see even more praise for a young woman who is, quote, rail thin and compare another young woman who is considered plus size at 165 pounds, five foot 10, 165 pounds. That's fucking, I, I, that's plus size? I don't have words. I don't have words. That is so far from plus size. I don't even like the term plus size, if I'm being honest. It's just stupid. But when you are saying that the rail thin girl is fabulous and will make an excellent model, and you put that up against the quote plus size girl and say she's too fat and she'll never make it as a model, to viewers of any age, but specifically the younger viewer, you are basically saying that skinny equals beautiful and plus size is not beautiful, not worthy. That's how it comes off. And as a grown woman who watched that show and as a young adult and young child who watched that show, I can tell you that from experience, it's an extremely harmful narrative. Expanding on this, another thing that was troubling to me was the exploitation of Elise's alleged eating disorder. And I mean, it was hard core exploitation with no therapy or treatment, at least nothing that aired, and no resolution for this situation. When again, a lot of young girls were watching this and they could have potentially struggled with the same thing. The other contestants were literally saying, quote, this girl is killing herself, unquote. I took issue with that. 
There should have been some sort of resolution there, not just for Elise, but for the viewers at home. And again, Elise has denied that she's had an eating disorder. She claims that this was, you know, just edited to make it seem that she had something going on that she didn't. Like I mentioned earlier, religious beliefs seem to be the main divide amongst the contestants. Ebony asked the girls if it was okay to have her girlfriend over for a few hours, and Robin, because of her faith, took issue with this because it was a gay relationship. Shannon says homosexuality is an abomination of the Lord. It was very cringe to watch and Ebony dealt with it in a way that made me so sad. You could tell that she was used to this and she was so considerate, which is more than I would be. I would go scorched fucking earth. She's a better woman than me, let me tell you. Finally, and by no means is this the only issue with this cycle, I'm sure I'm going to miss things here and in other cycles as well, but I want to get to the main beats. If I went down the list, would be here for two weeks, but the largest controversy didn't manifest until after Adrian was named the winner. Adrian Curry was meant to receive a contract with Revlon and Wilhelmina Models, but she never received it. America's Next Top Model and Tyra Banks ignored her when she contacted them about the issue, and Curry was basically erased from the show. Although she appeared in cycle two and was briefly mentioned in cycle 20 as a part of a challenge, she wasn't featured in the opening credits for cycle seven, eight, or nine alongside the other previous winners of America's Next Top Model. And a photo of her didn't appear in the contestants New York residents alongside previous top model winners. I have a quote here from Adrian that I'm going to read. We were promised a Revlon contract on my season and a contract with Wilhelmina. They did voiceovers on the actual aired show and change what was being said to us while filming, she claimed. When I met with Revlon, they informed me they never planned on using the winner, whoever she may be, for any ads. They hired me for $15,000 to model makeup in a room with 10 executives in it to honor said contract. I was crushed but still very grateful. $15,000 is amazing. However, Adrian went on to say that to this day, she has yet to receive her check from Revlon and said her career took a hit after America's Next Top Model cut ties with Wilhelmina to work with rival agency IMG Models. Another quote says the following, I reached out to Tyra and Top Model, desperate to get out of my contract and to get advice as I was not being given any castings, etc., by an agency that wanted me to fail. Crickets. Phone calls ignored. Then my $15,000 for Revlon? Suddenly, I wasn't being paid. Adrian said that she was then sent to Africa to model, which also didn't work out. Another quote, Wilhelmina still refused to pay me. I was broke and stuck in a third world country. My family had to wire me money to buy my ticket back home. Overall, this first cycle in hindsight was so raw and real, and I mean that production-wise. There was a lot less fluff, and it was very obvious the budget was low, and they were working working out the kinks. According to Tyra in an interview, the judging room for this cycle was actually a hotel room with the beds taken out. The curtains were sheer so you could see plugs and doohickeys hanging around. The judging panel was so smushed together, truly like there was no elbow room. The judges were on top of each other. And during the judging portion, it was actually Mr. J flipping through the photos. The judging portion of the show was also very skimmed through. The audio was absolutely 
absolutely abysmal, especially in the Paris episode. It was so bad. It legit sounded like a Boost Mobile flip phone recorded the judges from across the room. From Adrian's Y2K fashion icon status with bandanas and Nine Inch Nails shirt and the cringy Tyra voiceovers, Cycle One had an undeniable and inexplicable charm that has made it a favorite amongst ANTM superfans. The second cycle of America's Next Top Model premiered on January 13th, 2004. Cycle 2 started off a bit different with something rarely seen in any cycles of ANTM. There was no casting episode, which later becomes a staple in the show. So it was strange to not see this in this cycle. This was also the only season to have 12 contestants. Cycle 2 did keep the diversity in those 12 contestants, and that would be a consistent theme throughout most cycles. One contestant worked at Walgreens, another worked for a Fortune 500 company. We saw pageant queens, bombshells, and of course, our favorite types of beauties, the quote unquote ugly ducklings. And I say that with love. If you're an America's Next Top Model fan, you know about the ugly ducklings that Tyra and the rest of the judges love, the unique beauties. The judging panel was also different this cycle. Kimora and Bo exited the show and we were introduced to Eric Nicholson, a senior fashion editor at Jane Magazine. He is mainly remembered for fighting with Janice, understandably. Then of course, there was the introduction to noted fashion photographer Nigel Barker, who was the hot boy on panel who the models drooled over. There's been varying comments on Nigel over the years. There were contestants who claimed he was a bit of a flirt, contestants who said he was extraordinarily professional, and other contestants saying he crossed the line of flirtations into inappropriate behavior and was extremely rude and standoffish. So jury's out on Nigel. Regardless of the push and pull of opinions, he remains a fan favorite judge and always gave a lot of constructive criticism. Luckily, we see Mr. and Ms. J, of course, and we continue to see them throughout the majority of ANTM and their presence was even more defined in this cycle. Most of the changes this season didn't feel drastic. It felt more like polishing and fine tuning. For example, we saw a major improvement in photo shoot quality and in the grandiosity of challenges and prizes, which indicated a healthy bump in the budget. A change that started off positive, but would become a bit more negative in later cycles was the focus on makeovers. This cycle was the start of the jaw-dropping makeovers and really leaning into the drama of a drastic change, even if it's not necessarily the best look for the contestant in the real modeling world. But the insanity we see in cycle two was certainly not even halfway to the peak of the mountaintop. Not even a quarter, not even, not even fucking close. The most intense makeover was a cute shortcut and a blonde bombshell makeover for the non-traditional pretty girl. But compared to cycle one, this was a big deal and the makeover consumed an episode, which would be the blueprint for every other cycle. Another pleasant change was with Janice Dickinson. She seemed to tone down her nasty remarks. Don't be fooled, they were still there, but she seemed more personable and teetered the line of likable bitch this cycle. She did this while still maintaining the idea that if the girls can't handle her criticism, 
than they weren't cut out for the real modeling world, which I do have an understanding of. It doesn't make it any less mean though. This season was also the beginning of a long love affair between producers and gimmicky bullshit. Not only was the entertainment in the challenges and photo shoots, but how could they resist taking advantage of the girls in their home setting? It started off fairly tame with this psychic who came in and it was pretty cringe, but seemed okay. Overall, the biggest shift, and in my opinion, the most negative, was that the show became very Tyra-centric. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it seemed to be an opportunity for Tyra to stroke her own ego. For example, the Sarah elimination. Tyra made it all about herself and her music video and started crying. Tyra Banks is and was an established successful celebrity who will do decent in whatever avenue she chooses. And the girls in front of her were like fucking Walgreens employees or broke up their families because they didn't approve of them modeling. So why are you crying? Why was she crying, you ask? Because she felt like this was such a scary step in her career because the challenge was all about a music video that she was shooting. And I guess she felt like Sarah didn't do a good enough job. And at the end of the episode, Sarah, the contestant, is literally covered in tears and mascara, crying about this being her dream that was shattered. Then suddenly, a Tyra voiceover begins over the sad elimination music. While that sad music is still playing, she says, saying, stay tuned for the world premiere of my music video. It felt so odd and so just not right. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. And speaking of that music video, there's there's a few things to unpack here. Let me start at the beginning. This was Tyra's debut single, and she was out promoting the single first and foremost on her press circuits and then sprinkled America's Next Top Model into the mix, which is fine. It's totally fine. That's Tyra's time. She can discuss what she wants. But then that promotion seemed to melt into the show when the show is not Tyra's Next Top Model. The making of the video, which was for the song Shake Your Body, was made into a photo shoot and a challenge. The song was awful, but it was typical for the time. You know, I wasn't mad at it. The single flopped and was basically just used for the show and seemed to be a way for Tyra to test drive her rock star fantasy. It ended up just being given away on UPN's website or something like that. It wasn't even sold. And that was her first and last dip into the music pool, as far as I know. The only good thing we got out of that music video was that scene when Joanna was falling. That was hilarious. I'm sorry. People falling is just fucking funny to me as long as they don't get hurt okay Joanna was fine there were a lot of things that stayed the same in this cycle as well the divide amongst the perfectly curated contestants was still there although the root of that was personalities clashing this time not religion the personalities were big this cycle in almost every contestant the casting directors aren't dummies they know big personalities mean big clashing which equals big drama which equals big ratings jumping into controversies the first one is something we see pop up heavily in the UPN era, but does seem to trail off in later cycles. And it was, once again, making the allegation that Ioana had an eating disorder. Camille seemed very cold and calculated in throwing this wild accusation out at dinner with Tyra the second Ioana stepped away. My issue again is that even if it was true, we got no resolve. It was edited in to be a slice of drama, which I know is reality TV, but I have the same issues with that that I had
had in the first cycle. Another big controversy was that the winner, Ioana, was pre-selected, and the show was, at least, well, the judging portion, was entirely scripted. This is a consistent theme through every cycle that never really became public knowledge until the boom of Reddit and social media, when the contestants could speak directly to their fans about their experience. So this went on for a while on the show without the naive viewers of the early 2000s being privy to it. The biggest controversy of this cycle was the Shandy cheating arc. It's probably one of the biggest talked about controversies of the show's entire existence. It wasn't the biggest scandal. There are far worse things that have happened on this show, but it was extremely calculated. The following clip I'm going to play is from a YouTuber named Oliver Twixt. He does so many awesome interviews with former America's Next Top Model contestants. The sound quality isn't great, but the quality of the conversation is fantastic. So I apologize beforehand. This is just like a phone setup he's got going on. It's not like a Barbara Walters interview. So I do apologize for that, but I want to give some context from Shandy's perspective on the situation. I'm also going to throw in just a little tidbit that she had after the fact when she went on the Tyra show, because I think it's important to show that not only did Tyra exploit the situation when the cycle originally aired, but also years after the fact. Things that even the contestants think are reality is really production working for a certain outcome. Did you have that experience on Top Model? I didn't think about it until many, many, many years later, but... The whole, like, hot tub thing, that hot tub, we were there for a week. We've been trying to get that dang thing to work the whole week. Isn't it kind of suspicious that it just miraculously works on the night that they decide that they're going to invite those guys over? And then to also be like, oh, here's all this alcohol, and you guys haven't been able to do anything. They, like, set up situations in the hopes that you're going to be a certain way. Basically, we were just so excited to have any kind of interaction with anyone besides production and each other. So when they said, hey, what do you guys think about those guys that you rode on the Vespas with when you first got here and you went to all the ghost seats? What do you guys think about inviting them over for dinner and like drinks? We were like, duh. What are your thoughts on Tyra? Like just from that cycle and any other interaction you ever had with her? In the beginning, I thought she was great. And then when she started inviting us back to do the Tyra show was when I really got a distaste for her. Like. Don't like her. Don't like her at all. I've never seen that episode where I cheat. I just, this is a preference. I don't need to see it. I lived it. I don't need to see it. She wanted to talk about that when I was on with Eric. She was like, oh, let's fly Eric out too. We'll talk about it. And we said, like, don't show it. You show it, we're going to walk out, like, mid-filming. She was respectful then. I went on the show again by myself, and we hadn't talked about it beforehand. I'm just sitting there, and then I was just like, Shandy, we need to, like, talk about something. And then it comes up on the screen, and I'm like, is she shitting me right now? Like, she knows. She knows. I was like, this fucking asshole. She had the nerve to be like, I noticed you weren't watching that. And I wanted to go, yeah, because you know I've never seen it. You're just doing this because you don't care. You just want a reaction out of me. I'm a human being. This was something that affected my life. And she, like, wouldn't hug some of us. She wouldn't say hi to us when we would show up on set. I'm over her. I've been over her for a long time. 
And to clarify, no one forced Shandy to do anything, obviously, but they set her up. I'm not even mad about that. It's shitty, but it's not the worst part. What bothered me personally was the fact that Tyra was reporting how disgusted she was when she saw the footage of what she dubbed an orgy, but then went on to literally promote the show. Well, more like promote her single, like I said, and throw a crumb of information about the show. And that crumb was this alleged orgy. America's Next Top Model. Yes. All right. Uh, did well last season. Yeah, this you, is our second season. You were bringing it back. Sell this, Mama. Tell people why they have to see this. Okay, Conan, I saved this for you, okay? Mm-hmm. There is a little surprise in America's Next Top Model. I'm not going to tell you what episode it is. We've already had one episode, so we've got nine left. Okay. And my girls on the show were doing the nasty. Doing there's, what? There's do eight people making out at the same time, kind of in the same vicinity. I don't want to say orgy, but I just said it. Ooh. So you're saying that at some point soon on this show, there's an orgy. What happened to television? <laughs> and I didn't know about it until Eight people? Later. And how many of them are models? Four. I was really shocked, too, because I didn't see it until we started editing the show. Sometimes I don't want to know certain things because the girls might want to talk to me about something or confess, and right, I don't want right. to, like, walk in and know as a producer. Right. So a lot of times I'm like, don't tell me certain drama that happened. So, right. you know, they do kind of confide in me about the orgy a little later. Overall, cycle two was when the producers and Tyra really saw the potential of calculated situations in not only the challenges and shoots, but in the at home, I say with air quotes, by the way, life of the girls while they are in vulnerable, high stress situations with little sleep, little food and little interaction with the outside world. The discovery of this led to the highest viewed season of any top model cycle. And to make this a horrible metaphor, this was the first high the show experienced and they spent 20 seasons after this trying to recapture that same high. They constantly went back to this format and beyond rolled with it. They rocked with it, rolled with it, strolled with it until it reached a level of a fever dream that was beyond comprehension. As much as I wanna get into the nitty gritty of every single cycle, we have so much to cover and frankly, my tongue would fall out. I wanted to set up the era and the show. And this is where the show really started to gain some traction and really find its identity and more of the magic. The remainder of the cycles in this UPN era that runs from cycle one through six were my personal favorites. These are the cycles I remember watching with my big sister and being in love with. We saw an introduction to a new judge, Nole Marin, in cycles three and four. Twiggy, arguably the most beloved judge replaced Janice in cycle five. There was a bit of drama with Janice's exit, as you could imagine. In an interview with Radar, Janice Dickinson clarifies her earlier remarks that she quit America's Next Top Model over a dispute about money. Previously, she told the New York Times, I think I was asking for too much. In this new interview, she confirms that she didn't really quit, as was reported. Instead, she said, I got fired, and says it's because she was just telling the truth, and I was saving these girls from going out there and being told that they're too short, too fat, their skin's not good enough, etc. And as you might expect, being fired did not make Janice happy. She says, quote, I'd rather be an honest bitch than some ass-kissing, sugar-coating, namby-pamby, wiping ass motherfucker. I made the show number one in 52 countries, and then I got the sack, and the UPN executives replaced me with Twiggy. No one in America knows who Twiggy is. There's no way anyone could fill my shoes. There's no way. Tyra's no walk in the park. Tyra's really righteous. On the other hand, it was said that Janice was literally passed out sometimes at judging and her alleged substance abuse began to take a serious toll. 
In recent years, Janice has attempted to mend fences with Tyra, saying, I just want to take this time to apologize to Tyra and say I'm terribly sorry for the antagonistic things I've said about her in the past. It was just because I was hurt from being fired from the show. She also claims she was not in a sober mindset and was battling addiction. To my knowledge, Tyra has never publicly accepted this apology. And as far as Twiggy goes, she may not have been well known in America at the time, but she quickly became a beloved figure here. Twiggy was a British cultural icon and a prominent teenage model during the swinging 60s in London. Twiggy was initially known for her thin build and androgynous appearance, considered to result from her big eyes, long eyelashes, and short hair. She was named the face of 1966 by the Daily Express and voted British Woman of the Year by 1967. She had modeled in France, Japan, and the US and had landed on the covers of Vogue and The Tatler. Her fame had spread worldwide. Jay Alexander, the runway coach diva extraordinaire, replaced Nole Marin in season five. A quick note about Nole Marin, there are allegations of sexual assault and a history of taking financial advantage of the people he works with. Nole has denied these allegations, but do with that information what you will. A lot of people name these cycles as the classic prime era of America's Next Top Model, even though they weren't the best rating-wise. What this era had was viewer loyalty, which led to consistently good ratings. Some cycles were more viewed than others, but there were no flops. And that viewer loyalty, in my opinion, of course, was due to quite a few factors. As I mentioned, we saw Jay and Twiggy join the judging panel, and these were people with lovable and trustworthy personalities. We believed them, we trusted their opinions, and we all wanted to be best friends with them. The other factor was, of course, our connection with the contestants. And we had some of the most memorable ladies in this era. We had Takara, Yaya, Eva, Naima, Lisa, Kim, Bree, Nick, Nicole, Nena, Jade. Oh my God, Jade, the biracial butterfly. I'm an exotic biracial butterfly. I'm a biracial butterfly myself, so don't come for me. She was, she was cringe and us fellow biracial fucking butterflies know it. We saw other fan favorites like Veranda, Joni, Danny, Brittany, the life of the party. And one of my personal favorites, of the entire show, Narelle. These are girls that felt real to us. They felt fun. And even with Eva, who said horrific things in the first episode, we learn more about her and why she says such cruel things. And it made her feel real. It doesn't excuse the things she said, not at all, but it helped us understand her. She was an imperfect hurt person, and a lot of us can relate to that. There was a perfect storm of personalities. We saw ourselves in these girls, and for the most part, they were extremely likable. And even when they weren't likable, we see some sort of redemption or resolution for them. We saw them get severely sick and literally leave the hospital to go pose for a photo shoot on a fucking elephant. We were rooting for these girls. I think that was a key ingredient to the audience loyalty. It's not the only reason as we see in later cycles, but it was a big help. The second ingredient in this loyalty soup was in great part to the absolute genius Jay Manuel and his creative direction for photo shoots. This era had the best photo shoots, hands down. As I mentioned earlier, there was a format that was followed to keep the shoot exciting and balancing that entertainment with keeping it believable. I never doubted that crumping on a roof with clowns for Payless shoes was a far off concept. I saw that Swarovski crystals ad with a tarantula 
as exhilarating and beautiful, but also very model. I mean, that was me at 12 years old, knowing nothing about modeling, but I believed it. Jay was having fun and enjoying his job, and it showed through his work. Jay Manuel and Jay Alexander agreed on a May 2020 Instagram live stream that Cycle 3 put ANTM on the map, with Manuel explaining, quote, Even with the Tokyo disasters, which drove me crazy, it was still one of the most fun cycles in a weird way, just because of everything that was going down. And if you are unaware of the Tokyo disasters, let me break it down for you really quick, because none of it aired. In that 2020 Instagram live stream with Jay Alexander, Manuel revealed that the judges had already arrived in Tokyo because they fly ahead of the contestants. But upon arriving in Tokyo, customs thought the contestants were hookers. Uh-huh, hookers. And they didn't let them enter the country. Luckily, before they could be detained, production put them back on a plane, flew them to Guam for two days, and from there, the girls got proper visas to enter the country. Jay Alexander also revealed that he was meant to meet the girls at the airport and was left waiting for them for hours because he hadn't been told what was happening. This left him furious because production completely forgot about him, and he traveled for two hours from Tokyo to the airport to meet them. Jay also revealed that the show's stylist was traveling with the contestants, but that in Tokyo, they don't have showrooms like in a lot of European cities. So she traveled with trunks with the clothes for the photo shoots. But she was also turned away at customs, got a black stamp in her passport, and was sent back to New York. However, she took her trunks with her and production told Jay, guess what? Now you're the stylist. They gave him some money and him and Jay Alexander had to buy all the clothes for the photo shoots in Harajuku whenever they had a free moment. So he had that job on top of his already crazy job. Manuel has also admitted that the girls being turned away at customs was the big disaster of Cycle 3 and did mess up production. Due to CoverGirl's partnership with ANTM as of Cycle 3, they had a bigger budget. So Manuel was really able to produce an elaborate commercial, which was what the girls thought they were supposed to shoot when they landed in Tokyo. He described how he built a huge set that took a week to build and got a famous director to shoot it. But once the girls were sent to Guam, production tore it all down. When the girls finally showed up in Tokyo, production said they couldn't give Manuel any more money for a new commercial. Manuel said he was extremely angry and production told him it was his problem, which he claimed was very America's Next Top Model production, by the way. Slight shade. Eventually they did the commercial, but the robes that the girls wear that we end up seeing were robes from Manuel and Alexander's hotel. And they shot it on a patio with a reality cam and zero proper lighting. The commercials ended up being judged an hour later and Manuel was mortified, saying it looked horrible and that he was embarrassed to even say what happened. Not that it was his fault, he did the best he could. Which even if we didn't know what he was going through exactly in that moment, his passion for the show was felt through the screen even in the midst of editing and shitty voiceovers. The other side of the coin was the challenge part of the episodes that were, again, believable. We understood why interviews and walking around a pool and movement classes were important to an aspiring model. I was never personally invested in the challenges, but I didn't mind them in this era of America's Next Top Model. The producers, again, really leaned into makeovers this cycle. In the beginning, the makeovers were pretty simple until the meltdown started happening and Tyra started announcing buzz cuts and micro braids and bleach blonde hair and lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. It was exciting and we loved the tears. Don't lie. We loved the tears. We loved yelling through the screen. This is going to make you famous. Who cares about your hair? It'll grow back. You're going to be a supermodel. Don't throw away your chance. 
The makeover episodes were some of the best rated and the drama and intensity of the makeovers just kept growing and growing. And that was true in cycle three as well. In 2005, which I do believe lines up with cycle five, Tyra began to add more to her plate of shit to do and started her own talk show. Not that this is wrong. She is very clearly driven, but we see a pattern of Tyra spreading herself very thin over the years. And I can only imagine how that affected the show's production. I wanted to throw that piece of information in there because it will become kind of important later. Oh man, we have made it to the controversy. There was, of course, the itty bitty drama like Cassandra being eliminated because she didn't want to cut her hair, even though she had already cut her hair, but didn't want to cut it a tiny bit shorter just to resemble Mia Farrow and Rosemary's baby. And then there was Granola Gate, which was catty childish bullshit when one of the girls wrongly accused another of stealing her granola bar and the whole thing blew up out of proportion. You didn't eat the granola bars, right? Okay, what is this about the granola bars? But then there was, uh, what the fuck just happened drama. Yaya, you're, I feel half African, half cowgirl. Looks like you're about to ride a giraffe. You have this intensity to prove your sort of Africanness, and I think that sometimes it's overbearing. It's just too much. It's sort of a layer on top of a layer. In response to trying to prove myself as an African, that's just where I come from. It's very natural to me. And I did not choose that hat for the very specific reason that it's very cliche. The fabric that it's made from is very artificial, very cheap, fake kente. There's a different way of explaining yourself and being defensive. And you're being very defensive. And it's not attractive. Just because we had a talk about, you know, Afrocentricity before, and it's kind of misunderstood. I'm all about, like, expressing yourself in your culture, but it's still done in a fashion way. You want your outfit to be, look at me, and this outfit is, look over there. The car looks better than she does. If the body could just slim down 150 pounds, that would be good. Then she'd be 30 pounds. That would be better. Takara, but she's something about it. She's interesting. Yeah, a lot of flesh. You could have voted her out the first week. Why waste her time? Didn't I? No, you didn't. Why waste her time and tell her that she could be the only girl that could ever win America's Next Top Model that's a plus size? You're the first plus size girl that I could say could make it. It's fine to have a stance, but for you to say one thing and then say something the next, stick, stick with it. I give up. I, I, just... I just see a lot of discrimination. It will never be Top Model. The things that you guys say are the same things people said about Kate Moss. She's so short. You've never had a Top Model that tiny. Do you think I that I'm going to be able to get a rack like this? loaded with clothes in your size. You can't find something in my size, so I'm supposed to feel bad because you I'm, you have you're taking right everything now. as a negative. I don't think that you realize how this whole modeling thing works. <laughs> All right, you got pinched. Oh my God. I know, oh my God. Let me see. That was loud. One of the girls got a flesh-eating bacteria on her <gasps> That's been all over the news. There is some strain of bacteria that is resistant to antibiotics. You can get pneumonia and die from the pneumonia. news about um, some kind of disease that eats your skin? Uh-uh. Oh, you sure? You ain't hear nothing about it? Uh-uh. Y'all just can get a light. Oh, Tom, we need to get a light. I found out, like, my face isn't falling off and it's curable and everything. So, Danielle, you went to the dentist, but you refused to have your gap closed. Do you really think you can have a cover girl contract with the gap in your mouth? 
saw some really scary moments. One of the contestants, Rebecca, fainted mid-judging and the weave she had put in on makeover day actually softened the blow of the fall. We also saw this ridiculous high heel challenge that was so incredibly dangerous and got a lot of backlash for being unnecessarily dangerous and it actually hurt one of the contestants. Something unaired that we heard about later on was the idea that the modeling agencies and sponsors had a heavy hand in who made it to the top three or top five. It was speculated that Britney from Cycle 4 did not make it to the top three because CoverGirl wanted nothing to do with her and her hardcore party girl image. There have been quite a few theories revolving around that. Jay Manuel mentioned that with agencies, they have a say because they are judges on panel sometimes, but it's not that much pressure. In Cycle 4, one contestant, Kaylin, lost her friend. Her friend literally just died. And then for a photo shoot, she was lowered into a grave and was told to channel her sadness into a good photo. We will never know if this was pre-planned. Personally, I don't believe that it was. Shoots take a long time to produce. What I could see, however, if I'm playing devil's advocate with myself, is that the shoot was ready to go, it was going to be a completely different setting, and then last minute they decide to make it in a graveyard to lean into the drama and the emotions but we will never know. I would like to hope not. Either way, this was extremely insensitive and showed that the producers really pounced on real human beings' tragedy for entertainment. There was another moment that really lit the bulb of, oh, they cast people for controversy. Because if you didn't know, the producers are completely aware of the contestants inside and out. The week before contestants can live in the house, they must submit hours upon hours of psychology tests and have both psychologist and counselor visits in order order to determine what type of personality they have. So they know where these girls stand. To preface, it's known that the editing of America's Next Top Model is atrocious and portrays a lot, if not all, of these contestants in a light that producers want. But and however, some shit in or out of context is wrong and hateful and fucking gross. How many girls were at like I don't know. It was like 95% black girls. It was all black girls. Really? I didn't realize it was gonna be like that. I mean, what's your point though? I am the most uber conservative, Republican, hardcore Baptist you can ever imagine in your whole life. I don't like gay people. I don't like Muslims. I don't like abortions. I don't like anything liberal. It just pains me to know that people like this actually exist. And why would producers put someone like that on a show that is a competition to become a supermodel in arguably one of the most diverse and I guess in her opinion, liberal fields because liberal is apparently an adjective for things that aren't fucking white and straight and Christian. My answer is for the views, for the money, for the drama. They take someone that they know is controversial and hateful and they throw her into a pit of vipers. Not that I'm mad about the vipers. Clearly she deserves a little snake bite. It was entertaining to watch her get shredded, but I'd rather not have that situation at all. She wouldn't even pass fucking jury duty. Why is she on this show? And I'd like to unpack something while we're here, while we're in this moment, because it really highlights the ignorance of this young lady 
lady. One could argue that the Muslim religion is far more conservative than any Baptist church that you crawled out of. This Christian religion that you claim to practice, that you also make synonymous with racism and homophobia, that's your doing, not my doing. You put that label on your religion. And you also take that religion, racism, and homophobia, and you slap a political label on it. And then make that your whole fucking personality. I don't understand why people do that. Like, get a fucking hobby, get a friend. I don't know what to tell you, but it was just really disturbing to watch. It was very uncomfortable, which I'm sure was the entire point. And then we have the infamous meme. Even if you don't know Top Model, you know this meme. You've seen it. You know it. You love it. Rebecca, I admire your emotion right now. It shows to me that this was something that's very important to you. Tiffany, I'm extremely disappointed in you. This is a joke to you. You've been through anger management. You've been through your grandmother getting her lights turned off to buy you a swimsuit for this competition. And you go over there and you joke and you laugh. This is serious to these girls. And this should be serious to you. Looks can be deceiving. I'm hurt. I am. But I can't change it. No, you can't change what? I'm sick of crying about stuff that I cannot change. I'm sick of being disappointed. I'm sick of all of it. I'm not. You're Thank not sick you. of being disappointed, yes, Tiffany. Obviously, I am. No, you're not. If you were sick of being disappointed, you would stand up and you would take control of your destiny. Do you know that you had a possibility to win? Do you know that all of America is rooting for you? Do you know that? And then you come in here and you treat this like a joke? You come in here and look at that and say, I can't read that? You read 10 times better than half of those girls over there. You did. You did. And you come in here with a defeatist attitude. I don't have a bad attitude. Maybe I am angry inside. I've been through stuff, so I'm angry. Yes, but it's not, this is not, be quiet, be quiet. What is wrong with you? Stop it! I have never in my life yelled at a girl like this. When my mother yells at this, it's because she loves me. I was rooting for you. We were all rooting for you. How dare you learn something from this? When you go to bed at night, you lay there and you take responsibility for yourself because nobody's going to take responsibility for you. You roll in your eyes and you act like this because you've heard it all before. You've heard it all before. You don't know where the hell I come from. You have no idea what I've been through. But I'm not a victim. I grow from it and I learn. Take responsibility for yourself. To give you some context, Tiffany, who was the one we were all rooting for, was a contestant who got into a fight at a bar in the previous cycle. Jay Manuel later revealed that the real reason Tiffany didn't get into the house was because she didn't pass the psychological evaluation at casting week, not because Tyra didn't want her. He admitted that off camera, Tyra asked Tiffany, can you get help? And the network paid for her to get counseling and allowed her to come back and audition for cycle four. That is awesome. I love that. That's the type of resolution I would like to see aired. Tiffany came back the next cycle with a really beautiful story about how she's changed and how her grandmother let the lights go out just to buy her bathing suits for the show's casting. So immediately we were enamored with Tiffany and her story. She was rough around the edges, but she was incredibly talented and worked hard. So why, oh why, did this turn sour? Tiffany had the nerve to appear ungrateful to Miss Tyra Banks. After Tiffany's elimination in week six, the single mom was cool, calm, and collected. She shrugged and didn't want the other girls to be upset, and she was comforting them and was ultimately lighthearted about the elimination. Apparently, it was way fucking worse than what we got shown on TV. Speaking to Buddy TV, Tiffany claimed Banks got way personal, saying things like, quote, You can go back to your house and sleep on your mattress on the floor with your baby, unquote, among other cruel things. In 2006, Tyra had this to say to Forbes, quote, We're in a day and age where these kids want instant success and they don't want to work for it. 
I feel tough love prepares these girls. But Tyra admits to a second motive as well, and it's very telling. She spoke to NBC News in 2006 and said that people would rather watch nasty than nice and says, quote, I've got to sell a TV show. That was a quote I always kept in the back of my mind during this entire deep dive analysis. Another major misstep of the show was the handling of contestant Kenya's sexual assault allegations. What's the issue? I know it's not about feeling comfortable, but I hear him moaning, it just threw me off. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I don't feel bad about stopping the shoot at all. Martini has crossed that profession online, and I feel extremely uncomfortable. We're here in a professional situation. There are like 50 of us in here on set. Right, right. We, we're going with the flow. He didn't catch the hint. He kept doing it. This is for the guys. Let's try and be interested without literally grabbing her butt. The vibe was, oh, well, you're a professional and you just need to put up with that kind of stuff as a professional model. No, he's the unprofessional one and no one has to put up with that, new model or not. That's absolutely disgusting and you wonder why women just go with it when a creepy man pushes the limits of women in the workplace. That right there absolutely disgusting. Finally, we come to arguably the biggest controversy of the show's entire history. Yes, 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 yes. We have made it to the infamous Got Milk blackface photo shoot. We are actually going to switch your ethnicity. In cycle four, America's Next Top Model contestants shot a Got Milk ad while switching ethnicities. As one of them glanced in the mirror at herself in blackface, she said, I'm a black woman with a nose job. Someone outside the frame replied, you are, you're a Jackson. I'm a black girl with a nose job, come on. You're a Jackson. And I, I could just say so much, but I think we all know how just absolutely horrendous that is. This was a controversy that resurfaced in 2020 during the quarantine and made it to mainstream news. After receiving criticism about her creative choices and treatment of some of the contestants, Banks gave this apology and agreed the show had its issues. I started America's Next Top Model as a very early voice about diversity and inclusion. We were way before what is a trend now that I hope becomes the norm. So it was our mission to be diverse and to push back when we were told that we couldn't be as diverse. At that same time, I was still a working model and still being told, oh, you're too fat, Tyra, you're too this, you're too that. But I was still this like unique beauty crusader. I was also this person trying to get these models work. And I think at times they battled. And so what ends up happening is a, it's a clash. I'm saying, oh, I want all these unique beauties, but you need to change that and you need to change that because I have these agents in the background saying, yeah, you want us to sign these girls, but she needs to change this and she needs to change that. And that's how she's going to work. In hindsight, I should have still been that beauty crusader that is my heart and soul and why I started the show and then let the agents handle behind the scenes if that model wanted to fix teeth or whatever it is that they said that they needed to fix in order to work in this industry. I didn't need social media to tell me that. I realized that on my own and did a whole section of my book about that. There's another thing that we did. We had the models play mixed race. Because I'm a woman of color, I thought I was celebrating skin color. When that episode aired, there was a backlash. And I was like, oh my gosh. Coming from a black person, it's obviously not 
racist because I am saying that this is beautiful and paying homage. However, the mistake was that if somebody that has malintent sees me doing that, they'll think that their malintent way of darkening skin is okay. I want to say something before I get into my issues with this apology because I feel really bad slandering Tyra. I think that the good outweighs the bad with Tyra Banks. I really do. I think she is a wonderful representation for women and women of color specifically, but I feel like these are important things to call out. As happy as I am that she gave a statement and gave an apology, apology, if you want to call it that, it still feels very manipulative. It's like a magic trick. It's making you look one way and not pay attention to the other things. We can focus on two things at once. It's possible. We can say this woman has dominated. She is so successful and she's earned that success. She is a hard fucking worker. Tyra Banks has killed it. But we can also say Tyra Banks has made a lot of mistakes that hurt a lot of people. We can acknowledge that Tyra Banks is a human being who got lost in the sauce. I don't think Tyra's intent was ever negative. I don't think she's like, we're going to do blackface and it's going to be controversial and we're going to get all these views and drama and da 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 I don't think that was the issue. The manipulation and the trickery was the issue. She never once called what she did blackface. Not once. She danced around the word blackface like it was broken glass on the fucking ground. I was shook. I think it would have been so powerful and so impactful if a woman of color came out, admitted fault, truly admitted fault, and said, hey, my intentions were never bad. But and however, I did blackface. What I did, what these girls participated in was blackface. Here's what blackface is. Here's how something harmless and with good intentions can equate to blackface and how that can affect and hurt an entire community. I think that would have been an incredible platform to do that because that interview got a lot of eyes. It was a really hot topic at the time. And she could have taken that platform and used it as an opportunity to share what she has learned as she reflected over the years about this situation. Not only would that have come off as more genuine and taking accountability, but it also would have educated some people. And yes, I said take accountability. I don't think Tyra was canceled. I hate that word. People are so desensitized to that word with cancel culture and woke mob and it's just been taken and rolled with and driven 10,000 miles off a fucking cliff. It has no meaning. There are still things that hurt people. It doesn't make them sensitive. It doesn't make them too woke. Doesn't mean you're canceled. No, it's holding you accountable. It's just like in the real world. If you've done something incredibly offensive and disgusting that an entire community took issue with or an entire friend group or your coworker took issue with. Guess what? You're probably getting fired. It's not cancellation. It's the real world. This has been happening forever. Just because people took a word and ran with it, whether it was defensive or offensive, and decided to take it way too far and to put their own spin on it, that doesn't mean that it's not still valid. It's not cancellation. It's really not rocket science. Like, this has been something we have been taught since fucking preschool. Actions have consequences. That's literally what it is. At the end of the day, I am well aware that this is not my apology to accept. I can have my opinions on it. I can have my views on it, but it's not mine to accept. I'm biracial and all, but like you wouldn't know looking at me, I look like a fucking glass of milk. So it really, it it doesn't matter. It's not my place. Ken Mock, the co-creator, also gave an apology. It was pretty basic. You know, he was like, yeah, it was pretty cringe. And that was that. 
Overall, in this UPN era of America's Next Top Model, despite the insane controversies that peaked through these seasons, the audience remained loyal because we were sold the ultimate fantasy. That any girl from any place in podunk nowhere land, from even the harshest of backgrounds, could be polished and taught to walk and smize and morph into a rich and successful supermodel. Everything felt genuine, from the contestants to the judges to the shoots and the challenges, which kept us engaged and made us consistently want more. That's going to be where I end part one. We will pick up on cycle seven in the next installment of this series. So stay tuned for that. It's going to get really juicy. Today, I want to spotlight the organization RAIN. RAIN is the nation's largest anti-sexual violence organization. They also created and operate the National Sexual Assault Hotline. And that number is 800-656-HOPE. They also have a website online, rainwith2ends.org. Rain works in partnership with more than 1,000 local sexual assault service providers across the country and operates the DOD Safe Helpline for the Department of Defense. Rain also carries out programs to prevent sexual violence, help survivors, and ensure that perpetrators are brought to justice. On their website, you can find everything from grooming warning signs, laws in your state, education and training, and of course, numerous ways you can help whether it's through donations, volunteer work, student activism, and sharing your own story. Thank you once again for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Be sure to check out the pod's Instagram at NCQH Podcast for updates on streaming news and or you can follow my personal Instagram, L-E-A-A underscore M-A-R-Z and my TikTok is L-E-A-M-A-R-Z-Z. I also have a collection of art and poetry titled Myocardium available for purchase in a mobile or paperback format. The link for that is available in my personal Instagram bio. Until next time, stay caffeinated, stay streaming, stay strong. Bye.